it's time for school days. Hope for moms and dads of school-aged kids. I tell parents, you're like a training wheel on a bike. Your job isn't to make the bike move. Your job is to keep the bike upright. Those of us who are the true educators, we really want to be given the opportunity to educate the whole child. We can get free college degrees based on all of the opportunities that are out here and available to our students. Oftentimes, as parents, I think we want to protect our kids, but I think one of the greatest gifts we can give them is allowing them to experience adversity. Yeah. Here's your host, Danita Bailey. Well, good morning and welcome to School Days, Help for Moms and Dads of School Age Kids. I'm Danita Bailey. And I'm David Bailey. Wow, it's really been an exhausting few weeks. So let's recap. On May 5th, a video was released of Maude Aubrey, who was chased, gunned down, and killed while jogging by two white men. This event actually occurred in February but the release of the video caused public outrage and forced the hand of law enforcement to actually arrest the two men. On May 25th, another black man, Christian Cooper, was bird watching in Central Park when he, when he asked a white woman to put her dog on a leash. His sister began to videotape as the woman began to get upset and threatened to call the police on Christian and tell them, there's an African-American man threatening my life. Also, on May 25th, we saw a video of a black man named George Floyd, who was suspected to have attempted to use a, tw- a counterfeit, 20, counterfeit $20 bill being held down on the ground by three officers, one who pressed his knee into his neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds, cutting off his airway and eventually killing him despite pleas for his life. These injustices sparked outrage and prompted people across the United States and the world to protest, some of those ending in violence against police and riots. So that was the month of May. So, uh, Dave, I'm really glad you're here in this episode. Uh, You and I have had really vastly different experiences. You want to talk about a few of the experiences that you've had? Uh, Yeah, so most of my life, as um, many of you know, I grew up... um, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So when I first got there, um, I lived in um, a predominantly uh, white neighborhood. Um, so I was friend new to the school and um, I moved from Washington State. And so when I got there, you know, I was just trying to get adjusted. I was in second grade and um, I'm just going to get get straight to it. A lot of, uh, I had several kids that used to call me nigger all the time. And I had never experienced that before. And so I, you know, my parents told me to, you know, tell, tell the teacher. Um, and so then I would kind of quell it for a little bit. And then one year, I think that was maybe after second grade or third grade, I went to the, uh, I went to the park uh, summer. So school was out like probably like right around now. And uh, one of the kids that used to uh, call me that name, he came up to me uh, with a couple of his friends and he said, you remember how when I was in school and I couldn't call you a nigger? He said, well, now the teacher's not here to protect you. So what you going to do about it? And he said, I'll never forget this to this day. I mean, it's just, he said, he said, nigger, nigger. And his face, the vitriol in his face, just, you know, it, it just, it, it, it burned that, that experience burned in my head. Uh, I'll, I'll never, never, ever forget that. Um, so fast forward to high school, uh, 
I decided uh, around eighth grade, I wanted to go to the U.S. Air Force Academy uh, because I wanted to be a pilot. Um, so I worked my, I worked hard through high school. I had to move up in the, you know, the more of the more rigorous math classes and, you know, a big adjustment being one of the only uh, minorities in my classes. Um, I worked hard, grinding. Um, I was 10 points short in my SATs of getting in directly into the Air Force Academy, but um, I was accepted into the Air Force Academy Preparatory School, which was en route to the Air Force Academy. You know, you spend one year there, you get your SAT scores up, and then you move on. Um, but uh, so, you know, Air Force Academy accepts 20,000 people. They, they 10,000 are qualified, and they only admit 1,000 a year. So it's a very selective school. Um, and I was a part of that crew and, uh, I got accepted. And I remember one of the kids said, well, the only reason why you got in is because you're black. And I was like, oh, really? That's so they out of a, out of all the people that applied, they, they I'm just a, <laughs> a, a token black guy. I'm like, really? You know, so I kind of brushed it off. And as you can see, I wear glasses. I'm blind as a bat now. I couldn't fly, which is what I wanted to do. Uh, so, you know, God took me on a, on a different path. Uh, and I did, I went to the prep school, got accepted in, uh, got my appointment to the academy, which, you know, still a proud accomplishment, but it was just still this, this thing of, you know, inferiority, like you're not enough, you're not good enough and you're not qualified. And that's a whole nother topic, you know, as you know, affirmative action, but uh, yeah, it's, it's real, you know, um, it's, it's real. Mm-hmm. So my experience was a little bit different. So my parents grew up in Birmingham um, I called all three of my parents, my dad and my stepmom and my mom in preparation for this show. And my stepmother said, well, you remember now your dad marched with Dr. King and was thrown in jail with Dr. King. I was like, yes, no, I don't. For I have not forgotten that. Um, so that was that was kind of my parents when they were in high school. And then when my mom was in uh, college, junior college, she worked at the NAACT in Birmingham. And she would talk about how Dr. King would come in there. And so, you know, I grew up with those stories. Um, however, we lived in a predominantly white neighborhood, upper middle class, and we, our world was very white. Uh, we didn't go to church. Um, so there wasn't that opportunity there. We were, we did not have black families that we spent time with. And <laughs> my sister called, she went to college in Missouri and she called my parents very angry and said, you guys didn't teach me how to be black. <laughs> and my parents <laughs> kind of laughed at her <laughs> and they said, okay. And so I asked my mom about that last night. I said, Hey mom, what, tell me about that conversation. Cause I was too young to remember it. And she said, yeah, I told her, look, you being black is not your issue. Being white or being black in a predominantly white world, specifically upper middle class and wealthy and uh, in corporate America, where you're probably not going to see anybody like you, that is what uh, we wanted to prepare you guys for. That's that's what we chose to do. So that was that was kind of my experience, a little bit different from yours. Dave, are you still with me? Yeah. I'm sorry. You looked like you were having some issues. Yeah, I'm sorry. I was. Yeah. yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. As you were. Yeah. So we just want to give you a little bit of background about ourselves, but we don't want to spend too much time on ourselves because we have a whole lot of show today um, to talk about. Uh, we I actually asked 
viewers and listeners and friends uh, what questions they wanted us to ask. And so uh, we've invited three experts to talk about racial injustice and how do you talk to your kids about it and how to be part of the solution. So before we go any further, let me just say it does take a village. If you hear a great parenting tip or nugget of advice, share it with your parent friends. Facebook it, Instagram it, tweet it, link it in and add the hashtag school days show and hashtag I am school days. And also, if you want to be a part of the show, please give us a call at 214-444-5575 if you have any questions or comments. And if you're live with us on Facebook, I'm watching and you can drop us a question and we will do our very best to get to you um, as soon as we can. Uh, so, David, you want to introduce our first guest? Yes, sure. Uh, so uh, we have uh, Anisho Baraka, a.k.a. Show Baraka. Uh, he is an artist, content creator, speaker, and consultant. He's also a professor um, of uh, hip-hop and religion um, at Wake Forest University School of Theology. Um, he has traveled the world performing and speaking for more than a decade. Uh, he actively participates in various panel discussions, guest lectures on topics associated with art, vocation, marriage, race, culture, religion, and more. Um, and so through his talents and website, show has positioned himself to be recognized as a thought leader and visionary with a knack for performance, production, and politics. Um, uh, show aims to blend his artistic platform and academic knowledge uh, to contribute uh, a unique perspective to society in hopes of raising the standard, thereby enhancing the culture. And uh, just personally, I've been following uh, uh, show for years listen to his music um and uh so it's just an honor that you're here for us today uh i think i said before that a son was just an awe like, you're just talking to show and so yes yeah, so, <laughs> but but we're really glad that you're here so thanks for coming thank you for having me and nicole franks is the wife of 20 years and a mother of three ages 21 17 and 15 actually is that true anymore <laughs> Are they those ages? Yeah, tell me what their ages are. This is from the last <laughs> last year when you were on the show. <laughs> All right. Um, 21 years married now. 22-year-old, uh, still at Texas Tech. 18-year-old, mm. um, he graduates, actually has a ceremony next Wednesday. And my 16-year-old, uh, who's going into the 11th grade. Okay. Nicole is the Director of Diversity and Academic Coach at Alquin School in Dallas, Texas, where she has held positions for 15 years. Nicole oversees three diversity committees, conducts diversity training for students, faculty and staff, and parents, and supports off-site professional development for companies. Nicole has a Bachelor's of Arts degree in Speech Communication at Sam Houston, Univer Sam, Sam Houston State University and an MS in Human Relations and Business at Amberton University. So thanks so much for coming again. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Yes. Yeah, so last last year when you were with us, we had a wonderful discussion about um, diversity and understanding people that don't look like you. So um, if you have if you want to reference another show of ours, please go back and check out that show. So our, our next guest is Jenny Brady, and she brings a unique perspective to the diversity discussion. Jenny is currently serving as the director of diversity for Prestonwood Christian Academy, a position created to express her passion for diversity while combining her personal experience growing up in Honduras. She holds an MS in sociology and a BA in Spanish. In the educational realm, Jenny has worked as a teacher and administrator and is on the leadership team at PCA. She is the co-founder of the Christian Education 
Educators Diversity Alliance, co-creator of the podcast Grace 360. Is that it? Yes. Yes. And as a speaker, teacher, author and trainer on diversity, equity and inclusion for schools across the country. So welcome, Jenny. Thank you for having me. All right. So let's jump right in. Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, tell, tell me a little bit about your job as director of diversity. How successful either of you do you think you've been in your mission and what have been kind of some of the challenges? Um, so one of the things in our mission that I probably talk about more than any part of the mission is compassionate global citizen. And I believe that entails and encompasses the whole equity and inclusion, um, especially today, the whole point of the show, more than now, compassion, um, that one word, you just have to have, you have to have that empathy, you have to have sympathy, you have to be patient, and you have to be calm. So... <clears throat> I think that the things that we've been doing over the years has encompassed helping our students, even our parents, staff, and faculty um, to be compassionate global citizens. Um, so it's, it's working well. And I have the support of my admin, um, parents. It, it, I think if I didn't have that support, it'd be way harder to get the message through to everyone and in, in all the constituents of my school. Mm -hmm. And Jenny? Yeah, so at a Christian school, it's a little bit different in that um, we ground everything in, in what we what we believe is biblical truth. And so I work at attracting, training, and retaining a diverse community. And diversity for us, we have the acrostic grace. So it includes gender, race, age, ability, culture, and economic status. And so over the past 15 years, we've learned a lot of what we've done well and what we haven't done so well, but we continue to learn in those areas. We continue to grow, and we're very thankful for the diverse community that God has brought us. We started off for instance, with seven percent being seven percent racially diverse, we're now twenty nine percent racially diverse. So, we're seeing the fruit of the of the labor, but we're also looking at you know our portrait of a graduate. We have certain things that we want our graduates to adhere to, and so we're looking at are they truly adhering to those areas, especially when it pertains to diversity, equity, and inclusion, and as Nicole said, empathy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And Nicole, you were saying before we were on the air that you have a lot of meetings set up just today. Um, and what, what are those meetings about? So um, in the last year, we've been able to actually create a whole department. So we have coordinators now. We have equity inclusion coordinators. And so what we, we've planned to do, um, not just send out a letter to say, you know, we stand upon, you know, our mission, of course, of, of including everyone. But now it's time to have the discussion, the action afterwards. So we have three meetings um, today, one, one for students to come age, age nine through 12, that's tomorrow. Sorry, I have so many, I can't even keep up. <laughs> we have a section off by department, so departments can come and talk about age-appropriate um, resources as well, how they feel and what they can do for their students. We have just the staff to come and say, how, how, what can they do? And it's more personal and professional. And then we have parent two parent meetings set up this evening and next Tuesday, both evening and morning, so they can come in and one just kind of express the way they feel. What can they do? Um, and we are and this morning. One of the this morning's meeting was about how are we going to help them. So we're doing uh, pre action. What were they doing before this happened? Uh, the proactive. What to do after? Um, or what to do during this time to actually have these conversations 
and then the post action, which will be, okay, once everything's out done, you still have to keep having the conversation. And so we're gonna supply them with that. So our whole constituent, staff, faculty, parents and students, and some alumni um, from our school will be part of the conversation. Um, and we can, we want to continue this all summer. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I have definitely been fielding a lot of questions just from my friends. Um, we've talked a lot about how do we speak to our children about this? They're seeing a lot of images that we've never seen before. Um, and they're asking questions and, you know, some people don't know how to answer them. Some people are not answering them or they're just not having the conversation at all. So I wanted to ask parents, um, to give me questions or I did, I asked parents, I posted on social media, we're going to have some people on the show talking about this. What do you want to know, um, so that you can have these conversations well, and what are your kids asking you? So I have a bunch, we're going to get to as many of them as we can, I'm not even sure if I should start with this question because it is weighty and layered, but I'm going to ask it and see if we can, if you guys can, um, can begin to kind of answer it. So this first question from one of the parents, and actually it was one from one of the parents' children was, what started racism? <laughs> <laughs> Who wants to jump into that one? <laughs> that is, um, as, as you said, as weighty, it's nuanced, it's, it's steeped in a lot of history. And um, I will say, <clears throat> I, I, I can only do it so much justice, but I'm, I'm going to throw two books that I think will definitely help give definition to the, like what progenitor, the progenitors of racism. And that's um, stamped by a uh, stamp from the beginning by mm. Ibram Kendi. And then there's another one, the history of white people by uh, uh, Nell Irvin Painter. Um, and so just in, in, in the very brief terse way, I'm going to try to say, first of all, we must understand that um, racism is a product of, of power, of trying to grasp power. And so um, slavery has always been a thing within society. So you had slavery, people would enslave their own people, people would slave people who look like them. So uh, racism wasn't in, uh, uh, slavery wasn't an invention of racism. It was actually vice versa. Slavery was created. And so what, what happened was, is, and, and I'm gonna skip a lot of information, but there was, you ha- a, you there have was to. an explorer. <laughs> yeah. There was an explorer named Ibram, uh, Batuka who traveled the West, West Africa. And he glowed about the West Africans. And he said the West Africans were this, this, and that, and people didn't believe him. And so what happened was there was this Portuguese a, a gentleman named uh, Gomez de Zozo who went down there and he was one of the first people who uh, began to use sl- like color as a means, as a tool to enslave people. He began to write, uh, no, I'm talking about, uh, he, wrote a, he wrote a novel, I'm sorry, he wrote a novel uh, or biography and, that celebrated Prince, the Prince of Portuguese at the time, or Portugal at the time, that encouraged people to begin to use race as a construct to enslave because the whole goal was to civilize these folks before then slavery was used in trade africans would enslave other africans and sell them all for trade and so but what eventually happened was this individual said look there's these people in south africa who are beasts they're they're not civilized they're not like the individuals this other folk this other explorer talked about they're not wealthy they're not expansive uh, and their uh, technology, if you were their advancements, but there were other people on this continent, if you will, 
who are beasts, they're uncivilized, and we should civilize them not only through our religion, but if we could use them as commodity for trade and enslavement. And so you had to construct uh, an idea about these people. And the idea was that mm. they were uncivilized and that way we could differentiate them through color. And so this was one of the first constructs of using race or uh, identity as a mean for enslaving people. And from there, you move up to Western Germany or Western Europe and Germany starts to develop the eugenics movement, which um, starts to bifurcate people, I guess you can say, or delineate people according to certain racial categories. And so this is like from the 1400s up into the 1700s where you start to see this large movement of race. Now, from there, then you begin to see the racial constructs in the Western world. But it wasn't really a thing until, um, uh, I guess you can say, until like, you know, 15th, 16th, 17th century. Um, and so from there, now we have an opportunity to commodify racism, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and even in America, you had indigenous servants who were brought over. You had Black, you had Irish, you had all these different people, but it was easier to delineate who can be a servant because if the Irish would sneak away or if the Irish would get off the plantations or whatever, you, it was hard to determine whether or not they were free people. And so now you have Africans um, who, if you see an escaped dark-skinned individual, you know, well, they're an enslaved person. And so that was a way that, it, that was one of the easiest forms. And of course, this is a very elementary way and it's very quick. And that's why I reference those two books. But um, it's a very easy way to delineate who were free people versus who were slaves. So race was a construct that was created for the purposes of power. Um, and and we see the, you know, the reciprocation of that even to this day. Um, I want to mention somebody on Facebook said that stamped from the beginning, the book that you mentioned is free on Spotify right now uh, for a limited oh. time. Oh, there we go. Yeah. Oh, we're, all right. <laughs> um, anybody else want to jump in there? Can I just add something? Um, so if your child's school offers um, training for the teachers uh, for equity and inclusion diversity, parents should support that. Um, because I was able to attend a training from at the time, it's now Center for uh, Justice and Equality, I can't remember the new name, but it was uh, it was a training called Race in the Classroom. And some of the things that show, um, just talked about, I learned as well as, uh, and like you said, he did leave a lot of, a lot of things out. And one of the things, um, I think needs to be defined as why is it a social construct? And that is because there was, I don't have time to actually explain all this. I need y'all to go understand <laughs> break it down, break what it down. that means because it is of a, someone's opinion and thought that don't look like me. They thought what was uh, skull shapes, lip structure, body structure, is what they thought was pretty and what was, um, what, what it looks like. So if you're, you know, they even, if you go research, you have skulls categorized as caucasoids and mongols. You, you have to kind of know so much more history because it does not start, yeah. <laughs> racism doesn't start here, but it was, it's, well, anyway, I need y'all to research that <laughs> um, because we can't, we can't teach all the history right now. It's not enough time. Um, and, but you have to be active. And if I could just throw this point in real quick, 
you know, a lot of parents are saying, what do I need to do? What do I need to say? What's age appropriate? I am a resource, so that's okay. Um, for my school, they know that, and I'm okay with that. Um, please come to me. I have what you need. But the information that is out there that I have is just updated. It has been there. There are articles from 2012 on how to talk to your children about it. Mm-hmm. There are articles and videos. YouTube has every video to gardening and, you know, how to stop your child from picking their nose. There are videos about how to talk to your children about all the identities, not just race. You have to be active. We can't teach your children because you're the first teacher that they've received. We work together as a team to build what I call world changers. Mm-hmm. So if you're not, if your mind frame is not to change the world only until the world is changed by tragedy, we're going to be right back here saying the same thing. You have to be active consistently, not when something bad happens. You have to go find the research. We can, the African-American friends and family can't give you all the resources, but they will love to see you come and say, hey, I just read this book from the beginning and this is what I thought. They'll be like, what, you read that? Okay, let's let's have a conversation. Um, so be proactive even after now. Um, I just wanna encourage parents. Well, yeah. if, if I can just, and, and I, man, amen, and, I think after all of what I've said in its convoluted, jumbled way, I think what 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 I'm trying to communicate is that people have hated one and like you you know, I don't need a different skin color to dislike the person who lives next to me. All I have to do is just have a neighbor. I'll I'll find a reason to dislike them. However, what racism did do is it built, and this is what I think is 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 really important, and I think these books communicate. What racism did, it just didn't create a reason, uh a delineation for why I should hate somebody, it built structures and systems mm. in which institutions, countries uh, uh, profited off of. You think about trade, the slave trade. Here's a, a institution of trade and commerce and which is built off racism. You have sciences that have been built off of racism. You have uh, imperialistic ideals that are built off racism. I think as to her, um, to, um, Mrs. Frank's point, this idea of beauty, when we think about Hollywood, the institution of Hollywood for the first 50, 60 years is an institution that built that built this idea of, of perpetuating what is beautiful to people. Um, and so therefore, what you have now is these like I go to Africa and you'll have people who are bleaching their skin because they think the ideal uh, beauty of whiteness is blue eyes, light, fair skin, et cetera, et cetera. How do you get these ideas is because institutions were built off of the suppression of other people. And so it's not that hate is, um, the sole propriety of hate is owned by white people because everybody hates one another. We can go to you know Ireland, we can go to Rwanda, we can see in South Africa, we can see the Zulu and Kosa. We, we know that people will hate each other if they look alike. However, how have systems and institutions been built off of that hate and how have people benefited off of that? And is it almost impossible to deconstruct those ideas and systems? And that's the that's the ultimate problem of racism. And that, folks, was question number one. <laughs> <laughs> um, hey, I'd like to say just one quick thing. I think um, this from history, when we took U.S. history, we took this con. Uh, there was the the uh, Dred Scott decision. Um, 
And in the Dred Scott decision, if you recall, um, there was a slave who they traveled uh, to a non-slave state. Um, and so the argument was, well, since I'm now um, in a non-slave state, that I that I'm not a slave anymore. And so, the, so it went back and forth on the courts, and that went to the U.S. Supreme Court. And the decision came down basically that, um, <clears throat> uh, well, yes, legally uh, true, uh, you're not in a slave state anymore, but you're only considered to be, and here it is, three-fifths of a person. Um, uh, you're considered like property. You're like cattle. You're like, you know, uh, oxen, um, any, any other things. So you're not, you're, you're property. So you are owned um, and not a man. Um, and so uh, I believe that, that that thinking that someone is less than, you know, because I'm a math person, you guys know that. So, you know, one whole uh, is greater than three fifths. Um, and I think that the the uh, subconscious mathematical uh, construct of how we look at people, uh, it, it can be different things, but when we're talking about race, is that if I think I am whole and you're not as whole as I am or you're less than me, then I feel like I can dominate you and to control you. Um, and that's been set up in you know, the, you know, the, the, the systems and structures that have been established legally by law in the United States that have a major impact on how we see each other today, how we see each other today, and then eventually what, what we're seeing going on today as well. Okay, let's move on to um, talking to our kids. Um, somebody asked, am I a horrible person if I don't want to have these types of conversations with my children? I think it's an interesting question because I think there are many conversations I don't want to have with my kids, but I know that they're important to have with my kids. And so that's the part of parenting that's always hard, right? Is, is that balance of, I don't want to do it this way, but this is what I got to do because I'm not I'm not raising children to remain at home and to remain in a protected bubble. I'm raising kids to be um, citizens of the world and to be productive in doing that. And so I would say just because you're uncomfortable with it, just because you don't want to do it, that doesn't mean you have the right to not do it. Um, if I could be blunt enough to say that. No, that's awesome. Uh, kind of a follow-up question was, when I have these conversations, do I need to be fully honest about my biases and prejudices with my children or will that just make it worse? Um, can I say something on this part? Of course. Um, so the development, and I should have brought my statistics, the development of the brain is that children are, um, are sponges at young age. Um, they observe things you think they're not observing. Um, and I will try to get you that resource. There's a gentleman who did a study and talked about our brain has compartments and boxes. And it starts at a young, younger age. So if mom flinches at something, mm -hmm. the child says, oh, that's negative. If mom looks like, say, you may have a housekeeper who doesn't look like them. And mom, you know, is negative and talks under their breath. The child is processing all that. These are the pre-actions. Um, that I don't think parents understand that when you do these things, your child is observing and absorbing what you're doing. So if you are completely positive, you usually have a child who sees things as positive, right? So when you don't want to talk about something, nine times out of 10, you have had a negative reaction to that part. So say, let's say most parents don't want to talk about um, sex with their children. Um, 
you have to talk about it because social media will do it for you. And I'm pretty sure no one wants what's on social media to teach their children sex education. Amen. Um, that Amen. goes the same as race. Um, you don't want social media to teach your children about race or the LGBT community or anything. You need to be honest and share your family values age appropriately. Um, and there's plenty of resources. So let me give you an example. Um, when I talked to the children yesterday, they asked about riots and protests. I said, let me show you the difference. When I call you in for recess um, and you're like, oh, man, I really wanted more time. That's a little protest. But when I'm ready to walk off and you decide to break the rule and stay, now you're in the riot mode. You're breaking my rules. My rules is line up and let's go so we can start our next, next lesson. So that example, you can take examples out of your family, your classroom, and use that that's practical that they can understand. You have to think, where's your children and what do they deal with and how can I help them understand what's going on? The biases, they have biases as well. Um, and you can go from there. Like, you know, when you did your birthday party, you didn't invite um, Jose. Why is that? And then you talk through that. These are actions that you have to consistently do. Again, you cannot keep all of a sudden, we're all going to come together. We got to fix the problem. Problem. I'm gonna stop there. Well, I mean, so, but you're right though, because I can I can remember coming home and telling my father what I thought was a hilarious joke that ended up being a black joke, and my dad did not think that was funny, and he had to explain to me why that was fun, what why that was not funny. So that was my peers kind of teaching me about race, um, and informing my ideas ideas about race. So if you don't have those conversations, they're gonna get what they get. And and so if to to both of the, the the wonderful explanations from the ladies before me, I think one of the things, and if I could be candid, is that the church, and I don't want to assume your audience, but I think Christians, especially, need to understand the importance of telling the truth. And because what happens is, is we assume that reconciliation can happen without truth telling, and it's not possible. Hmm. You cannot have reconciled community. You cannot have reconciled people. Our, the basic fundamentals of our theology is you cannot be reconciled to God until you come to an acknowledgement of how flawed and, 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 and broken you are. But the problem is, is in our society, what I think our theology does is, is because of its, its middle class, upper middle class posture as a Western civilization, we, we want this veneer that we have everything together. Mm. And so if I tell my kids that I have these prejudices, if I, if I expose the prejudices of my neighbors or, the, you know, the, the soccer moms, of uh, your best friend, then I'm not, then there's there, there, that, that in some ways taints this religion I have. And that's not the case. The, the reality of it is, is that, and I said this on a phone call yesterday, when we make sin cheap, we also make grace cheap. And we tend not to believe that the, the glorious God that we believe and we trust in can do away the wickedness in our heart. And I think about reconciliation projects like Rwanda where people are being reconciled after killing family members are, it's just, it's amazing. If you look at the, um, just Google or research the uh, Rwandan Reconciliation Project, I'm, it's probably not called that, but it's something tantamount to that. And so if we don't tell the truth, then there will never be any true reconciliation. That's, the, that's basically um, the bottom line. So yes, it's very imperative that you have these conversations because to to mrs frank's point you, is it all right if i call you miss franks i don't know if that's <laughs> 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 but, 
then somebody you're going to learn. That's good. Okay. You're going to learn from someone else. And the reality is, is you're going to learn someone else's values and you don't want someone else's values. Right. Um, Oh, I'm so sorry. No, go no, ahead. I just wanted to add in, um, as a white woman speaking into this, I have learned that talk is great, but action is so much more important for my kids. Yes. And so um, it's not just what I say, but it's who I surround myself with. It's who I surround my family with. Amen. It's where we go. It's what we do. You know, we're, we're members of a predominantly African-American church because um, it's a phenomenal church, but it's also that we need to surround ourselves with, with the beautiful diversity that God has created. And so it's, it's the action that speak louder than those words and our kids will realize that if we're just talking to them and we're not backing it up with action they they'll they'll think they can do the same thing in that and so just be careful with that hey let me ask you because one of the things uh we had a racial reconciliation uh, panel at our church on sunday and one of the things they talked a lot about was the importance of proximity um, if you live in a in a world that is very homogenous, then uh, you don't get other people to speak into um, into your life about uh, their experiences, and so you have you end up having a lot of group think. So, what what was your reasoning for um, deciding to join a predominantly black church? Uh, well. It was kind of easy for me just because I grew up in Central America. So um, I grew up in, of course, a, a Hispanic, a Honduran church. And then um, when moving back to the United States and starting a family, we were in a community and we went to a church there that was somewhat diverse, but not really. And then when we moved where we are now, started praying and realized that God was calling us to this church. And um, we went and visited one time and it was it was very evident that he was calling us to this. It was interesting, though, in that process, because I had knowing the differences between our two children and their personalities and how God made them uniquely. I had prepped my oldest and my youngest for, hey, we're going into a church where we are going to be the minority or the ones who aren't seen as much. And I just need to go ahead and prep you for that. Um, I didn't with my middle kid because she's just different. And I knew that she would, I didn't think she would see anything in reality. As we were leaving, she, she was about seven and she pulled me down to her level and she said, mom, there's a lot of brown people here. And so um, it was a beautiful discussion of, yeah, and isn't it amazing that they worship just like we do and that they praise God with the same words and uh, as, as everyone does, that we know who praises God. And so we've been there for about five and a half years now, and it's really helped us. I would, um, going back to that proximity, one of the things that we discussed is the need to, with proximity is to create relationships, but to be careful with those relationships that they're not just transactional relationships. Relationships. Mm, they're not the best relationships for me to gain from them, but they're true personal relationships where we're in this together. Mm, and so mm-hmm. uh, just be very careful as you enter in this dialogue, if you're just beginning, not to find people that you can learn from just for that, because that's not proximity in reality, but to create relationships that are meaningful to both. That is so good. Um, can I say thank you? Can I say thank you to that? Because um, I've received multiple texts um, from people who look like me, you know, are overwhelmed with their um, people who don't look like us. White what people. should I do? What do I need? Yes. Um, you can say it. White how people. do I help? <laughs> <laughs> we know how what you're I talking help? about. I know. How, 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 how? And they're like, I can't, I'm not your teacher. I can't do it. I can't do it. And so I love what you said, Jenny, about being, not being transactional, but being deliberate that there's value. 
because we do it in other areas. Like I really had to remove a friend and, and, and put them down to associate about five or six years ago. And I still care and I still, but they weren't bringing value. And, and I don't feel like I was bringing the value they needed. And so it wasn't a friendship. And that's how you do, I would think everyone, um, especially people who have different cultures, right? Because if I don't want, I don't want them to be your friends to understand how white people think. That's not why I want to be your friend. I want to have intellectual conversations or laugh or, or watch goofy stuff like Dumb and Dumber. I would never watch that. I just threw that out there. So, you know, that's what I want in a friendship, an array of things. And I, and I love what you said, Jenny. That is so true. Let me, let me throw in there, too, because every Black friend I have has said that same thing, that they have had a barrage of texts and emails and phone calls from white friends or acquaintances or people that they have not talked to in 25 years um, saying, I'm so sorry, and what can I do? Um, I think that although it is overwhelming, yes, it is overwhelming, I'll admit that. <laughs> I felt like a black history teacher for the last couple of, <laughs> of uh, for the last week, but it is overwhelming, but I do feel a sense of responsibility because I feel like I cannot be upset that they don't understand if I don't tell them what my experience is. If we don't open our mouths and um, say, this is why I have been feeling like I'm in mourning for the last two weeks. This is why this has been so painful for me. Um, and so I don't want to, I don't, I don't, I don't want to encourage people. I don't, I don't want to discourage white people that are listening right now to not reach out to people. Um, because I, I, I feel like we definitely need to have these conversations, um, but I, I do appreciate though what you said, Jenny, that don't make it a transactional thing. You know, if you're going to call me and I haven't talked in the, you know, this long, let's not end it because I answered your questions, you know? Amen. I don't, yeah. So we want to avoid being trite. And I think that's just any general relationship. You, you want to make sure that there's authenticity and there's, uh, there's, you know, you're genuine in your interaction. And I appreciate what Jenny said. I do think I have somewhat, and not to disagree with anything anyone said, I do think when we talk about proximity, and I think Jenny is doing this, is that you have to make sure that even in your proximity that um, you're doing it on, uh, I think black people are the only people in a people group, better yet, in America that struggles with being isolated um, in dignity, right? Other people groups, isolate themselves and not like isolated just because I don't like white people. I don't like Latino people. I don't like this, but for the most part, black people were either isolated due to racism or due to, um, uh, poverty. And usually what happens is if we want to progress in life, we say, I want to escape or I want to get away from, which means there's a negative connotation to where I come from. And in order to progress, I, I need to get to this place. My little, a little controversial ideology would be, I do think reconciliation is necessary. I do think all people should be involved in reconciliation. However, there are certain people who are, who are actually called to that. Mm -hmm. And that when I mean called to that, I mean being actually integrated into particular institutions where they, they're fighting the fight to be a part of a school. They're fighting the fight to be a part of a, a particular company. They're doing podcasts like this where they have the energy to actually engage in the conversation, to be that history teacher, to 
to educate people. And there are other people who I think more like me who are like, I don't have a problem talking to all the white people in the world as long as it's on my terms. But my energy, honestly, my energy and my effort is going to be towards how do I build up the black community? Mm. How do I create jobs there? How do I give my energy and resources to these people? When I make music, I am making music for uh, this particular people group because I just identify with this. Now, when that becomes Lord over my life, then yes, that's a problem. However, I don't think um, the love and the affections that I have for this people group is a problem with the Lord. Um, and so I would say when, when we talk about proximity, I do think sometimes it can become an idol and, and it oftentimes comes at the detriment of Black people. Mm. because um, black people are usually the ones who have to to uh, suppress or mm. like I've been a part of a lot of multicultural movements, uh, most particularly churches and nonprofit organizations. And usually what is done, what it is, it's, it's done to make white people feel comfortable in black spaces. Mm. And I would just make sure that we guard against that. And then when white people do want to relocate, you'll understand you're relocating with at the, with the, like Jenny has done with the purposes and the intuition to know like I am I am removing my uh, for the lack of a better word preferences in order to integrate into a culture like I'm a missionary and not the missionary in the sense that you're becoming a missionary to the, but like I am moving to another culture and I am going to learn the culture I'm going to be a part of the culture I'm not coming to uh, appropriate the culture I'm not coming to gentrify the culture I am coming to be a part of the culture and the asset and to learn and not to save or to be a hero. I love it. And and let me just read something that one of our listeners said. She said, I agree with sharing and enlightening, but the onus is not on the oppressed to educate the oppressor. Conversations are important, but please take the responsibility to find resources. I thought that was Amen. good. Yeah. Okay. Let me ask here um, another question. If I can find it. Oh, here's what somebody said. So many are afraid to say the wrong thing. How can I for avoid offending? <laughs> can you repeat that, please? <laughs> Sorry, I want to make sure I heard it correctly. Sorry. Well, basically, and you've you've seen it on social media. I know that people and it and people have even called me and said these things. I've said I typed something and then I erased it and right. then I typed something and I erased it. I was afraid to say anything offensive. So I just called you because I knew you would understand my heart. If I, if I talked to you, I understand the fear in that. So what this person is asking, what, how do I avoid offending when I start broaching these conversations? I, I have a, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, I want to, I want to, cause I think this, yes, go ahead. <laughs> no, I just in the process of what I've learned, I've learned when I take that learner stance, when I take the stance of not being the one who's going to speak truth into the situation, but really who's going to learn no matter what I'm saying, that it really helps. And that as people get to know my heart and, and are able to um, meet me where I am, well, not meet me where I am, but correct me and where I am. And if I have the humility to listen and to acknowledge that I was wrong, that it helps tremendously. Um, I have made many, many mistakes, but in those mistakes, I have grown incredibly. So I don't try, of course, I don't want to continue making mistakes, but I don't try to shy away from, um, I guess, shy away from the learning is where I, I try to engage in the learning. And I don't know if that helps answer some of that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think this is, I don't know. I'm, a, I'm slightly, I, I don't know. I, I have, a, I struggle with 
the lack of grace we have for people who are trying to learn. Mm. I, I, I genuinely think if somebody really is, is, if they're really trying to be an ally, as the term is used, or if they're really trying to grow and learn, like, I don't understand why we have little patience with people who may ask stupid questions. I, I ask stupid questions when I'm trying. I remember for the, <laughs> getting married and trying to understand my wife. I'm sure my wife would be like, boy, you are asking some of the stupidest questions. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, 17 years married now, I understand. Uh, I would like to think I understand women better. I definitely understand my wife better. Um, and the same thing with with LGBT community. Same thing with whatever. Like you you don't understand people until you engage. Yeah. And until, and if you don't allow me, Henry Nguyen, a Catholic theologian, says hospitality is not forcing change to happen, but it's creating an environment where change can possibly happen. Mm. And if we don't create hospi- hospitable spaces where people can potentially say some things that are like, huh, then I don't know if change will ever happen. However, I will say this, doing it over social media is is somewhat dangerous because Mm -hmm. the toxic way we communicate, right? It's all public performance. And in Mm -hmm. public performance, people are trying to look good. People are trying to shame people. People are trying to put on this veneer. And if you can do it in the privacy of a a conversation, a one-on-one intimate conversation, I think that's best. Um, I'm just not a fan of having these extreme deep dialogues over social media because the... Just we we just have a propensity to try to perform, and it's never helpful. But I will say, like, we are in a very sensitive time. People are sensitive, and I get why people are sensitive. And I'm not trying to say people shouldn't be sensitive. However, I do think we allow our sensitivity to to shut people off. Like, I'm not a fan of cancel culture. I don't think if you cancel people, people will never grow. People need to learn why there are some things that need to be canceled. However, I'm sorry need to understand what is cancel culture. Oh wow! So it's basically, <laughs> sorry, I have uh, no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's basically if someone gets on, uh, if someone's so for instance, Drew Brees, right? Drew Brees. I don't know if you know the football player, uh-huh. Brees, yeah, quarterback for New Orleans Saints. My father played for the New Orleans Saints, so let me be clear. I have a little sensitivity to the <laughs> New Orleans Saints. Uh, Drew Brees made some statements that were really ill-informed yesterday about the protests, the NFL protests, and how does he feel? And Drew Brees is a white man. For those who don't understand, who don't know. Uh, asked about Colin Kaepernick uh, and the protest of during the kneeling during the, the national anthem, and he said, "I will never." Uh, I'm not, word for word. I'm going to butcher it, but basically said, "I will never agree with the disrespect of the flag in our nation." What Drew fails to understand is, for the longest time, people have been trying to explain this is not a disrespect to the flag, nor to a disrespect to the people who uh, serve our country. What this is, is a protest against brutality and systemic injustice within our country. And people have been ostracized, mainly Colin Kaepernick, for doing that very thing. And so um, people said, you know what, we're canceling Drew Brees, blah, blah, blah. He's done. We're not going to deal with him anymore. And my thing is like, yeah, he needs to be corrected. He needs to be rebuked. However, we can't just shut people off because they don't learn that way. People don't learn when you cut them off from society. Mm -hmm. They learn because you pull them aside, you give them a spanking, (laughs) and you say, don't go back out there and do that again. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) And then when they go back out there and do it again, you pull them back in. You say, guess what? You you did something stupid again. You know? We give people opportunity. And I, and I think that's, that's the problem with our society. When we have these conversations over social media, we tend to just shut people off. And I think it's all, most of it's, it's ego. So I'll, I'll just shut up. But, um, no, yeah. that was so good. I had to be honest, though. I didn't know what you were talking about. And I felt like I, I, no, maybe, I maybe wasn't alone. <laughs> 
I can add something with that, just speaking as a white woman, I I think it's really important that the white community does not get defensive when we are corrected or when we are told that something is offensive. You have to, you have to guard against getting defensive. If I can just add that little piece. (laughs) Yes. Please. Amen. And please. And and I want to say, I want to say a couple of things because this has come up and this is probably in a different direction a little bit. Um, so one of your questions I know we talked about was what, what do people like to be called? So one of the things I like to challenge people who ask me that is what conversation you have are you having that you have to identify people by their race or their heritage? Mm. If you had to think about what are you saying that you have to say, um, the black, is it okay for me to say black or you know, African American? <laughs> I wanted the story you were giving me. Now you take me to a whole nother train. I don't even want to know the story, right? Um, if you're telling a story, unless it's actually vital, and usually if you're telling that story, you're comfortable with that person, you should be able to ask that person, are, are they offended in what way um, regarding race? Because it's not just um, African-American, Black, it's also Latina, X, Lat, and, and there's a preference in that community as well. And if you're, if you're close enough to the person, you should be able to ask. If you're not, should you be telling a story that deals with race? I just want you to think that through. And then I also want to take something. People of color is all shades and right. brown. So if you say person of color, it's not about black people. It's about all the shades. Um, we actually, in the in the NAIS, the National Association of Independent Schools, hosts a people of color conference. And literally... Everyone is invited. Um, now, our brothers and sisters, our allies who are white, um, are not so much invited because some of the spaces can be hard to uh, be in and talk about. Um, but I've learned, and, and I might get some slack off of this if any of them are watching, but I want you to learn from these educators what we're saying and what we're thinking and what we want to do to make our schools better. because when we all go back into the real world after we leave this conference, we're hit beyond how was the conference? What did you learn? How can I be better? How can I, hold on, let's Uh take this deliberate and be proactive and do something that's long lasting, right? And you have to share all that. It's so nice to have someone who is white with me stand and a a real ally, an Mm -hmm. activist, not an ally, sorry, an activist that we can, takes the things we learned at the conference or even the way there's one also called the white privilege conference and people don't go to that because it's this white privilege conference but the amount of information and education intellect it's overwhelming i i haven't been but i get to get the information when i send people the the resources you want to know how to teach your your classroom or you want to share with your parents these conferences are important and usually they are for educators but I'm telling you, support your schools, districts, get in there. Because the information, me giving you all the information is from going to these conferences or having these one-on-one with experts um, and understanding uh, people's perspective of all races. Th- these conversations can't be just among people who look like me or people of color. The conversation has to be with everybody. I told you I was going to take this a little off, but that just... <laughs> That just sparked me the question because when I tell a story, I don't think race always has to be a part of the story and be corrected. Like, is it okay? 
um, I don't, I don't know. Yes. Is the part of the story? Does it help me laugh or understand your point? Like, I don't understand why that part. Um, but do I do agree with show? I'm not defensive at all. I love talking about it. If you want to talk about it, I am like, yes, let, and I have ran into people who are totally opposite thinking about race who, um, tell me that uh, white privilege doesn't exist. Um, I don't get mad. We have a conversation. Why do you think that? Mm-hmm. I literally have taken a person, a white person, and we and they told me white privilege didn't exist. So we went to a restaurant. We went to, I'm going to say the store name. We went to a high-end store. Um, <laughs> and name we went three places. I can't remember. And I said, I'm going to predict what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. If you, when we are seated at the restaurant, they're going to look at you where you want to sit. Um, when we get the check, they're going to, oh, which one? You're going to, it's going to be your option. And then they're going to like, you know, who gets the check? And then I just went there and believe it or not, they finally got, you really deal with this? Mm. Not, I mean, it depends on how many places I go mostly daily. Uh, yeah, I deal with that. I deal with, can I help you? Well, she was there first. You want to help her? Um, I'm like, hey man, give him a check. Give him the check. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's right. Hey, I want to No, that's okay. And and along the lines of um, the offending, you said something so great show um, in one of the videos that you had uh, that you posted that we don't have homogeny of thought in uh, the black community, same as any community. What did you mean by that? I think oftentimes, so, you know, there's, there's a lot of nomenclature out there that will say like black people aren't a monolith. But then, however, when when it comes to issues like this, we assume that all black people think the same about every issue. And it's not true. Um, this has always been the case since there was ever a Negro problem in America. Um, people have always thought of different ways on how to deal with slavery. You had those who were like, well, let's just wait for it to be um, for the government to end it itself. There were those who were like, no, let's just create revolution. And sadly enough, there were those who were content with slavery. Right. Then once the reconstruction came, they were like, well, how do we for the rest of the people? There were some who was like, well, let's isolate and start our own colleges, Booker T. Washington, Tuskegee. Then there are those who are like, no, we need to integrate into the greater uh, educational system, W.E. Du Bois, um, and so on and so forth. The difference between the Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, and even today, you have different organizations that protest differently and, and figure out how do we deal with racism, uh, white supremacy in our nation? And I think the first thing that we do a disservice to in our communities is that we think everybody feels the same way about issues, that all black people fall on the same political spectrum, mm-hmm. that we fall all on the same fill in the blank. And until we get to a point where we recognize that one person doesn't speak for the whole of black people, I don't think we're going to have a good chance of progressing. This is part of my problem with how we vote for the last 30 some years. I'm just throwing a number out there. But since Jimmy Carter, pretty much. Um, 80, I think it's uh, as much as 88% of the black vote, black vote has been to the Democratic Party. Now, this is not me saying that black people should vote Republican. However, what I am saying, if a political party knows that 80% of its vote is coming to them, no matter what kind of policies they institute, that really means they don't have to do anything for you because they know you're getting, they know you're getting your vote. And so I believe... <clears throat> There has to be a radical shift, not only in how we see, and I'm against like theologically, spiritually, socially, how we engage, but also politically. And until we start to realize that we have a diversity of thought and that certain people, black people are going to argue over school choice versus public schools. They're going to argue over abortion, pro-life. Black people are going to argue over LGBT and affirmation and uh, non-affirming. 
then we're and we can't ha- have civilized discussions around it, then we can't progress as a people. Um, I, I want to interject in there real quick uh, on this. So, you know, with my experience has been, I told you in the beginning of the show, growing up, having been called you know, a nigger, you know, I thought that was my middle name. Uh, growing up, it, it, it was a lot and it was painful uh, versus, you know, I have, you know, some other African-American friends who've well, been in, you know, almost exclusively African-American context who've never been called a nigger. And, you know, in, in the race, then there's a whole debate about, you know, okay, oh, how come black people can say nigger to each other? That's a whole other discussion. But that from a from someone else uh, who is white calling them, they haven't had those experiences before or, you know, thinking that, you know, all black people are. Um, come from single parent homes. No, I came from a, uh, you know, a, a, a two parent home, um, college educated, and my, and my mother was a housewife. Um, and I'm still African American, you know. And and so you know, I had to deal with the battle of being, you know, being black enough uh, in the African American community as well. You know, as, you know, as far as who who you are, and, and if you don't do it like this or think like this as well. So just to say that, just like there are different, uh, you know, philosophies and approaches to life. Uh, with all people, it's the same with African Americans. So just to put these brushing generalizations over people, or to say if you don't talk like this or act like this or be like this, that means it, that you're not this or you know, um, yeah. well. so that that's it's a whole other layer conversation. Uh, but um, I'm I'm mostly I'm there. and I agree, and I'm mostly frustrated with people. I'm granted people who black black you couldn't you can't. You have no control over your parents living in a particular community and being educated, et cetera, et cetera. That's that's your upbringing. Um, I'm mostly frustrated with people who speak for black people, Uh-oh. but have and but have no real interest in the black community. And I find so many activists. I find that there are so many activists who claim to be spokespeople for the black community on areas of justice, areas of this but they don't really live in black communities. Some of them are not even married to black people. It, and it's just like, I look at them, I'm like, is this just a performance <laughs> for you? Or is this something that you really invested your life into? And so for me, that to me is the is a more egregious thing than somebody who's recognizing like, look, I come from a, co- I'm, I, I, yes, my skin's black, this and this and that. But there are some things I, I just don't connect with what will be seen as, culturally black i just you know i didn't grow up watching martin i didn't grow up listening to tribe called quest i didn't you know and and who's to say like those things are inherently black i would say they are but i can't take somebody else's blackness because they don't they didn't do that you know what i mean but the one thing i will say is if you speak for black people and i can't see your footprint in black community and black business and black worship and black fill in the blank then i need you to be quiet Mm Can I enjoy the teaching to, to, to help your parents real quick? Uh, show said something, and I want to go back to that. We talked about parents want to know what they can do. So let's, let's, let me give them two points real quick. So um, teaching your children the platform, first of all, hopefully they're learning government at the age-appropriate time. They're learning about government. But teaching your children about platforms of each of all the parties, that's a teachable moment. Um, showing them... W- and you'll be surprised. Um, and people ask me, are you Democrat or Republican? I'm purple. Because if you really look at the platforms, <laughs> and I teach my children, if you look at both sides of platforms and our family's values, we take a little bit of you and we take a little bit of you and we have to vote in in that mind frame for my family, my neighborhood, and my city. And another teachable moment for your children that's 
that's pretty, you can take them pretty young. The city council meetings, right? Amen. Um, these are things that they can actually see and hear. Um, now, right now, you know, the city councils are, are full. And so speaking of being black and having different, I'm not, I'm not mourning in the same way everybody else is. I'm mourning because in three weeks when COVID-19 is, is back up at the topic, people of all races, black, white, are going to go back to their lives. Before all this happened, and, and I've been saying this, people are becoming selfish. They love their comforts. They love their Starbucks. They love their friends going and hanging out um, at White Rock Lake and different things. They enjoy these things. There's nothing wrong with it. But people go deep into their comfort zone that everybody around me looks like me. Um, there's no intentionality. There's no, there's no movement of make sure we're not here again. So taking my kids to go vote. Those are things that you can do so they can see who's there. The multi, hopefully, multicultural people that are voting. Um, you can take them to um, uh, different um, places. And one other teachable moment, um, because I know we're running out of time. When you go take your children to the library and pick books, mm-hmm. pick books that, 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 not stereotype books, please don't do that. Pick books with some of the same similar stories that um, I, just like um, uh, Mr. Bailey said, uh, he, he has this background, and but a lot of people think single-parent home. It's okay that Black people have the same background as everyone else, the Latino family or so forth and so on. And then I suggest if you don't know the culture, read the book prior to, figure out what you don't know, go research it, and then when you read it with your child and they have a question, you're prepared. That's being proactive. Because if we all go to the city council meetings in a month, if we all make sure we're voting according to our family, our neighborhood, our values, X, Y, and Z, change will happen. Mm-hmm. It may not be what we all want, but we all had a voice. Everybody can say, I don't have a voice. Well, it starts mm-hmm. teaching your children why it's important to vote. Don't teach them when they're 17. Mm-hmm. Teach them when they're three and five that mommy takes me every time, daddy takes me every time, grandma, whoever the guardian is, takes me to go vote. That means it's important to them. Again, they're sponges and they're absorbing what you do. Can I, amen. And I, and I want to emphasize something. I think that when she talks about voting for parents, understand, I, and, I, and, I, and this may be, I don't, once again, I don't want to assume your audience. Once again, I think Christian, a lot of the Christian community, especially white evangelicals, have forfeited a lot of their legitimacy when it comes to uh, moral, uh, I guess you say, uh, moral, uh, what's the word? Uh, a moral standard, it's just for the lack of a better, I can't think of it. When you vote for someone because you, you want to maintain power over compassion. And I think a lot of what we've, a lot of what the Christian community has said was flushed down the toilet with their alignment with a president who I think, I don't care if he's put a Supreme Court justice in, in that fits your values. I don't care if he's done this and did that. And you say, this is helpful for the Christian community with all the other things that come along with the baggage that this individual brings. I think it terrifies, it torments and it destroys whatever witness you thought you had to the world. And, uh, and I think parents must understand that when they look at their kids and they talk about voting or they voted this particular way, the things that you do will impact um, the lives of your children. So I want to say, you know, 
our audience is not necessarily Christian, um, but oh, okay. no, well, no, that's not, that's not my point. So I can, I no. can cuss a couple of times is what you're saying. Right? Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, sure. I did invite people to have their children would listen with them. So maybe not, <laughs> but when, no, what I wanted to say was, um, our kids are watching whether or not you're Christian or not, but our kids are watching us. They're watching the decisions they make. They're watching the people that we align to or align with and um, that is very important, whether whatever religion you are, whatever party you are, whatever, they are watching and they see more than what we even say. You know, they're Absolutely. watching what we're doing more than what we say. Hey, Jenny, your your head is nodding. Um, your, your, your head is nodding so fast. I wanted to see what you had to say about this. Well, well, mine's just going to follow up in regards, again, to the Christian community. And it's just going it, to, our allegiance is not in politics. And our allegiance is in unity and Christ. And I think politics divides so much. And so, um, especially in regards to racial reconciliation, um, it's one thing that nobody knows who how I vote or who I vote for, because that's not going to become, a, um, what would you call it? It's not going to become something that is, it is a determining factor between our relationship. Yeah. So, um. <laughs> uh, yeah, I want to add one more quick thing. So, um, just as a side source, last night my daughter, um, I don't know what she was doing. She she stubbed her toe, or hit something, and she was in tears, screaming. Um, she came to me, and usually, like our family is more of a like suck it up and kind of keep going type of family. With Unless you're bleeding or right, broken, right? Unless you're dying or the blood spewing out, spewing out of you, then like that. yeah. So, uh, but um, I was looking at her, and first I was asking her, so you know what happened? You know, she's screaming in pain. What happened? Um, how well how'd you get here what did you do why why weren't you doing what you're supposed to do um why you know what what you know and 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 then it was like no wait no 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 um i need to come alongside her Amen. and i'm not because i mean we've all had pain before but i'm not feeling her pain because i'm not her so i, I can't feel her pain but i can come alongside her in her pain so i changed it up and you know usually it's more of the suck it up but um but i was like you know i brought her alongside me i put her in my lap i gave her a kiss and i loved on her and said i'm so sorry uh for the pain how what you know how, how basically how can i serve you and so um hmm. she said she wanted a couple of things here i went and got those for her um, and came back alongside her versus uh, judging, finger pointing, assuming it was, I'm in pain, uh, my daughter's in pain, um, I'm going to come with you into your pain. I can't, I can't feel your pain. You know, I, I can't, I, you can't experience racism if you've never experienced racism before. But it's to say that this is, the, the pain is valid. I love you and I'm gonna come alongside you. And so um, I think God showed me that yesterday just to share with people um, that to come alongside, to come into um, and, to under, and to seek understanding, uh, but then see how can we now um, bridge, you know, uh, make bridges, uh, build relationships, start healing, mending, and not just assuming, um, but also uh, vice versa, 
uh, allowing people, uh, so my African-American friends or of any cultural race, to let people to come into your life. If they want to come into your life and don't, don't assume that they know the pain. Um, share. We have to educate. We have to help people to understand both sides of what's going on. So don't, don't be mad when someone doesn't understand, but also don't assume as well. That was, that was very well. Are we I was gonna, was, no, 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 no. I was going to say okay. that was well put, but go ahead. Yeah, David, that was excellent. Because it's, it's so funny you use that analogy because that sparked up a, a, an antidote in my own brain. When I was um, 18 or 17 years old, I was still living with my father. Uh, high senior in high school, I got robbed at gunpoint in a neighborhood that I probably shouldn't have been in. Um, and when I got home, my father was remarried to a parole officer. And the moment I got home, I got all the questions very similar to what you do with your daughter. Well, it wasn't like, oh, I feel sorry for you. It was like, what were you doing? What co- I lived in California, so, you know, gang affiliated communities. Uh, and they were like, what color were you wearing? Why were you out this late? Blah, 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 blah. And it was never like, oh, I feel, I'm sorry for you. And I think the problem was that his his wife, had all these assumptions of me, right? She she had this she had a a caricature of who I was, right? She didn't see me in my full full humanity. And even if I was doing something I shouldn't have been doing, like if I was hanging out late that night and I, my curfew was at ten, um, that doesn't mean that ill things can't happen to me. And I think what's what one of the greater problems with um, the narratives around some of these police killings is that. We are trying to figure out, well, they might have deserved these things. These individuals should have complied or they should have done this. Oh, well, why were they smoking weed? Or, oh, why was he out there? Why was he trying to use a, a forged $20 bill? Or, and the reality is, is that <laughs> that's not the problem. The problem is, is that there is that one there. I mean, granted, those things are not good. However, I think the way we view people um, is systemically problematic from jump street and uh and anytime we begin to start to create reasons and justifications why people are murdered i think Mm -hmm. that is a sign of a country that is that fetishes over violence and we love to use violence as a solution and i think that one is our problem that's how we built this country we stole the land through violence when people try to respond peacefully we respond with violence, i.e. the civil rights movement, a lot of these protests. It's just violence is always the answer. And I think uh, until we begin to see people as human beings and uh, love one another and see them made in the image of God, no matter what their views are on life, no matter what they're doing in the moment, especially when there's a nonviolent act, we're going to continue to see these problems. Y'all, that's so good. We are running out of time. I did want to touch on one other topic because we've had a really wonderful conversation about race and race relations, but there are definitely people who don't want to broach this subject. They don't want to talk about it. So one of the questions that one of the parents had was, is it okay to raise my children to be colorblind? No. <laughs> I agree. No, the world's not colorblind. Are you preparing your kids to go into the world? That reminds me of um, higher learning. I don't know why. Um, The movie, the movie, higher learning, the 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 movie, movie, higher learning. When, um, what is it? Uh, Not Judy. What was his name? Uh, The main, the, the, the white man on there who was trying to fit in, and uh, then yeah. you end up fitting into the wrong way. If Michael you Rappaport, do, yeah. yes, if you do not do that, when your child goes into the world, 
they're going to figure out, oh, I didn't know anything about that. Let me see about this one. Oh, I didn't know anything about that. Let me see. And they may choose the wrong group. You have to start with you because when they've never, I I remember going to college and this gentleman from Alaska said, can I touch your hair? And I was and that is my pet piece. <laughs> no, you cannot. I've never seen a black person before. How is that possible? Do you not have TV? And he was like, I really didn't watch TV. And then we go to California and surf. And uh, so I didn't really. And then I had to be not defensive. Even at a young age, I wanted to be not defensive and talk about seeing black people and what that means. And that it's a ray of us. Some of us don't speak grammatically correct. And some of us do. Um, and sorry, I know I'm rambling because that right there. Oh, you're good. You're good. You have to prepare your children for the real world because if I wasn't what who I am today, it, the response of asking to touch my hair, he could have came back with a you know some fingers missing. You understand what I'm saying? Because you know when they ask to touch your hair, they're already going in. They're not yeah, really right. like your hands. Like, Come right? on. Um, no, I'm not an African American museum, but he didn't know, so I had to not. And I don't know how I was blessed considering where I was in life at that time to not be defensive, but I did show him. You know, okay, you can touch my hair. Let's talk about my hair, your hair. And we had a great conversation. Um, but he cannot come into real world in college and expect to now learn about things he should have known about at three. It's not about being colorblind. It's about being color brave. I mean, we. Yeah. We, yeah. <laughs> it's okay. For that. Yeah. Well, the, I'm, I'm sorry. Say this world changers. Yeah. Well, don't you want to raise a world changer? Like someone, it, it takes, and I'm a hit, and I teach history. It takes one person really to change the world for good or bad. And you have to teach them the history. You have to teach them about Mahatma Gandhi. You have to teach them about Martin Luther King. You have to teach Hitler. Not, don't start with the hate. Start with how in the world did he get there? Talk about that history teach them so they'll understand absolutely teach them and it's it's not just colorblind because if you start with race it's going to transcend on all the identities that are different than them i'm sorry i'm a little passionate i'll be quiet go ahead Sean. that's good don't apologize oh, oh, i'm sorry let me just say one thing real quick here so uh, also in the whole color in the colorblindness conversation um to 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 value not just um we're all the same, but to value and also incorporate someone else's uh, culture POV um, into yours. Uh, we, we can say we're diverse, but as long as you think like me or talk like me or listen to the same type of music that I listen to um, or worship like me um, or understand the world like me, then we're good. Um, but true... Um, uh, understanding um, of how to incorporate is to say, you know, like, your experience is different from mine. Let me understand it and let, and let me value it and let me experience it. And it is just as valuable as mine. Uh, because when we, when we don't have that, then we just have assimilation. Um, and people may think that, you know, if, if we're all doing the same thing the same way, but we look like but we don't look like each other, then then we are all good uh, with us. You know, but no, it's valuing. You know, I love hip hop. I've loved hip hop my whole life. Um, and 
and and that's okay. I don't have to see things the way you do or 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 worship the way you do or whatever it is. Um, but to truly see someone else's point of view, see where they are and understand it, but then also to embrace it and then experience it for yourself. Um, I think I think we miss out on so much because we don't experience other people's point of views right. uh, one yeah. way or the other. You know, and, and that maybe we could keep on going, uh, but I just wanted to you know, put drop that in there as well. That's yeah. So good. So good. Um, so we are so out of time, and part of the reason why oh. I know that is because I saw David silently scolding one of our children who was trying to come in the room. I'm on a show. <laughs> um, I did want to um, quickly mention some resources. There were a lot of people saying, what resources um, can I look to? Specific books. You mentioned a couple. Mention those again. Show um, the books that you were recommending. Um, there's so many, but the ones I've recommended was Stamped from the Beginning by Ibram Kendi, um, and then uh, L, uh, Nell Irvin Painter's uh, History of White People. In regards to the first question, what is racism and where did racism come from? Those books, I think, are, they're experts in their field, sociologists, anthropologists, who I think do, a, historians who do an excellent job on, given the, the historicity around the history of racism and how white people actually became white people, like, yeah, the social construct of whiteness. Mm. Yeah, I got to get um, that. We're going to have to I'm download mad. that. I, huh? I'm mad. Uh, two other quick things. There's a book. I forget the name of the author. If you look it up, uh, it was written back in the 90s. Um, it's called The Color Complex, The Politics of Skin Color Among African-Americans. Um, it'll help to give an, uh, a historical context as to maybe, well, how come, you know, why is this happening? You know, amongst white, you know, why are things happening in the African-American community? Um, there is, uh, it just brings a different uh, understanding as to what is happening, which helps to better understand what's happening in the African American community. And then there's an article I came across last night. Um, it is called How to Not Raise a Racist White Kid. <laughs> um, it's on CNN, it's on the CNN website. Um, this is written from, from a white mother's perspective as well. And I think it's a great first start. Um, just some good, just practical tips as well, um, as far as understanding um, you know, how to start the bridge, you know, uh, bridge those areas where maybe there may, may be challenges as well. So I just want to add those in. I want to throw, I just realized, and I'm, I'm, I don't know if you guys are familiar with, well, two other books that I thought were great. Um, one is uh, Slavery by Another Name by uh, Douglas Blackman. I think it's a wonderful book that talks about the institution of slavery and how it kind of continued into today's time and um, the economic benefits of slavery and how it's morphed into other things. Um, obviously, the new Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, the documentary 13th. However, mm. there is one resource that I think is amazing for children. It's the documentary, A Class Divided. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that. When the white teacher takes her students and separates all her white students by eye color. Mm -hmm. I think that is a wonderful tool to teach racism to kids. It's called A Class Divided. There's a, um, I don't know if y'all have seen this one. This one's a, I would say this is a middle school book. It's a new kid. It's called New mm -hmm. Kid by Jerry mm -hmm. Craft. It's fun because it's a comic Ooh. book series. Um, and, and I, I mean, as an adult, I read it and got a lot out of it. I would also mm -hmm. say if um, in the Christian community, wide awake, if you're a 
You Are White, Wide Awake by Dr. Daniel Hill is a phenomenal mm -hmm. book. Color of Compromise by Jamar Tidsby is mm -hmm. awesome. And then Intentional by D.A. Horton is phenomenal. I echo 13th. We're having our high school students watch that before we enter in a discussion in two weeks. Mm -hmm. And um, and then there's another one that's an autobiography by um, by a, a person who was sold as a slave called The Kidnapped Prince. It is an old, old book that has been um, rewritten so that we understand it. And it rocked me to the core because it's an autobiography about being a slave hmm. from the 1600s. So I highly hmm. recommend The Kidnapped Prince. Let me just clarify, Jenny, did you say white awake or wide awake? White awake. Okay, gotcha. And he's coming out with a new one called White Lies. Okay. And it's his process of, of understanding as a white person, what he had to go through in order to understand, um, I guess you'd say the smog we breathe in of white supremacy in our country. Okay. Uh, someone um, online here said the book Raising White Kids. Have you guys heard of that book? Raising White Kids is also great for examples of why colorblind teaching is not progressive. It also gives examples to white parents of how to teach your children in all different situations. Uh, um also it's funny you said that because i was going to show that one. Oh, no kidding <laughs> which is my kids yeah um that's the one i was looking at like i should pull that down and then jenny also brought up another one that's really good um i don't know Jenny, if you sent the list of resources i didn't get the title all of them but i sent you a list of resources um of articles videos okay. um and i'll resend it and i'll put some when we get off i'll put some on but if there's teachers on here, um, I want to I want to definitely give talk about this, and I've given it to my teachers at my school. Um, sorry, um, it's the guide for white women who teach black boys. It mm. is a book with vignettes in it where it, it doesn't take long to read, but I think this is so important um, to read for everyone, not just white women, but all teachers and administrators, because it gets you an understanding of some of the plights and some of the things. Um, our African-American boys are going through and, and how, why the fear is there when from younger age uh, children all the way to high schoolers and college, they have these, um, and I think Show said it earlier or someone said it earlier, they have these things already stamped on them, a stereotype before they're even, before they even open their mouth. Um, and I've experienced that as a mother of a black son. Um, so I want to say it's called, and it's by uh, Moore and Michael, uh, and it's the guy, white women who teach black boys. It's it, it's really a good teaching, um, and parents can read it too. Um, it, it just it's, it helps you understand what you don't see in the classroom and how um, people can teach, and it can be just for it can be boys and girls as well. Just so, so, and I'll also try to add some of those in the comments. Okay, well, we are we are way over time. Uh, as usual, we'll always have um, the resources that we mentioned on the show on our website, schooldazedshow.com, um, for your reference. And um, you guys can pick that up there. Another thing that people were wanting is to know if there's um, specific speakers um, or, you know, people who they can they can listen to so I'll, I'll ask you guys to give those to us as well but i just want to thank you guys so much for joining us and being a part of this discussion this has been amazing thank you for having me yeah thank you yeah. so much 
So Noggin Educational Foundation is the premier sponsor of School Day. So we always want to let you guys know what's going on with Noggin. Our mission is to help close the achievement gap for economically disadvantaged children by improving educational opportunities for students, supporting families, and encouraging excellence and innovation in the classroom. School Days is part of our commitment to support families by providing access to experts who offer information and resources regarding all topics that impact education. If you love this program, please consider donating to Noggin. Your gift will be tax deductible. Head to our website, schooldaysshow.com to give today. Um, And as always, um, on school days, we have all of the resources mentioned on school days. And remember, you don't ever have to miss a show. Find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, and pretty much anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Noggin Foundation. That's N-O-G-G-I-N. And last but not least, we always want to end the show by saying that David and I are parenting by grace. We depend on God to give us the wisdom and strength that we need to raise our kids into flourishing adults. And if you would like to know more about that, please feel free to email me at info at schooldazedshow.com. Have a great week and stay safe. School Dazed is sponsored by Noggin Educational Foundation. At Noggin, we provide free educational resources to students from low-income families and support to their parents like the preceding broadcast. School Days is made possible by the generosity of listeners just like you. Please consider donating to Noggin at Noggin, N-O-G-G-I-N, foundation.org.